Sandy. I'm exhausted. How are you? (laughs) I have a new spring in my step because on Friday, for the first time in six months, my kids went back to school. Ooh. Are you nervous? Are you worried? Are you excited? All of the above? (laughs) Well, it was amazing to have them out of the house, I have to say. Uh, It was amazing to be able to go pick them up after school. And you know, the infection rate in Quebec City is pretty low. Uh, the, 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 the area that you want to be in is between 1 and 10 infections per day per 100,000 people in your city. That's kind of a safe zone for schools to reopen. And we are definitely in that uh, zone. We're, we're way on the smaller end of that zone. So that's really great. Um, but, you know, then every single kind of cough or every single kind of moment where you're like, hmm, I'm not feeling well, like I'm already going, oh, my God, they got COVID. <laughs> right, of course. So... Yeah, so it's pretty nerve-wracking, but um, but I I am one of these people that thinks that kids should be in school if we can make it happen during this pandemic, and so I'm pretty happy to see them go back. And my God, they were so excited! So that was pretty that was pretty special. Great, that's good. And so, what does it look like? Smaller class sizes? Uh, in Quebec, they made no changes, but our class sizes are already small, and so the kids only have 20 kids in each of their classes, which is great. Um, you know, parents can't go into the school at all. Parents can't go into the schoolyard unless they've got a mask on. Um, there's a ton of changes to the classroom setups and, and older kids have to wear masks and they're kind of like in little bubbles of, of work groups at school. So it seems like, you know, everything's taken kind of seriously. And, and one of the funny things about Quebec is I always said that if you send your kids to school with a cold lunch, it was like considered child abuse in this province. Really? <laughs> I had never, like, I had a cold lunch my entire existence, like, until I was finished high school. Yeah. But here, I mean, all the kids bring something that you have to microwave. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. It is interesting. And so the microwaves are not working. And so that has been a big um, piece of information to communicate to all the parents is that you gotta, (laughs) you gotta go with the Lunchables this year, folks. No more of the, whatever the, whatever the hell kids are microwaving. Right. But you're tired. I mean, I'm exhausted. Yeah, I'm very tired. Ugh. It has been. Do you know what happened this week? Everything, literally everything under the sun happened this week. Yeah, it was like summer was like, oh, my God, we have one week left. Let's do everything. <laughs> yeah, I it just it was so, so much. So, I mean, we'll get into it, but I'm sure we have some people to thank first. Yes, we for sure do. This week, we have got to say thank you so much to Kelsey, Melissa, Claire, Jonathan, Melanie, Mary, Alana, Sheila, Nikki, Christian, Holly, Amanda, Gail, and Rowena. Thank you so, so, so much for your support. We, we really appreciate it. I would also like to thank Glenn Murray for being a listener Thanks for being here. Uh, Glenn uh, was tweeting at us uh, this week based on some of the things we said last week. So we know he's a listener. Hey, Glenn. But I do want to encourage you, Glenn, that, you know, you have um, experienced some personal growth. You are no longer a member of the Liberal Party. I commend you for that. You no longer need to lie on their behalf. You no longer need to continue (laughs) to pretend that while you were minister of training colleges and universities, you implemented a tuition fee reduction. It didn't happen. The proof is in stats, Can. It was a ridiculous scheme that was a grant that wasn't given to even half of the students in the province. 
Stop lying for the liberals. Enjoy your new life as a member of the Green Party. Yeah, and and if you want to join the Green Party and vote in their leadership race, I mean, the time is now to do that. You have until September 3rd, which is very, very, very soon. And so I joined. I joined and I'm going to be voting and uh, I'll be voting for the folks that say that they are eco-socialists. And I'm pretty excited by this race. And I and I think it's a good opportunity to look at how shit the media is because media hasn't written at all about what's going within the Green Party. And that's a shame, but it's not too surprising because they seem to be really slow on the uptake, like what we saw with the conservative election results. Right. And so that happened this week. We were wrong. A prediction that we were wrong about. Aaron, Aaron O'Toole <laughs> is now the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, the Republican National Convention happened this week. The Black National Convention happened this week, which was um, a, an alternative convention that was put on for the movement for, by the Movement for Black Lives and was live streamed over YouTube. Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back uh, this week and survived and is in hospital and paralyzed as a result of the attempted murder by the police. Uh, and there were protests uh, around uh, the country in the United States for that. And also there were protests all weekend in Canada for defunding the police. Uh, a statue came down of Johnny McDonald in Montreal. Oh, uh, what else happened this week? I know I'm not even done. Like, I know that there's more. <laughs> Yeah, well, then after the Jacob Blake uh, shooting, of course, there was two people killed in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's right. And someone also was killed in Portland, I believe, in the last day or two. It was just last night. Right. Yeah. No, what what a week. And for us to do a political show on the tail of such a week is not the easy. The NBA strike happened this week as well. A lot of <laughs> a lot of athletes uh, pulling their labor in protest of uh, the treatment of uh, black people at the hands of the police. I just this was a very very long week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got ratioed actually by uh for 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 saying that Canada is fake and sucks ass. Um and so I mean there's a lot of folks out there that really love Canada. And um, it's a reminder to me that, of course, Aaron O'Toole, who's now the official leader of the opposition or the leader of the official opposition, his campaign was run by the folks at Ontario Proud. And so I think what we will see, um, they are very savvy online and that their critics are going to be used as whipping posts Far more often, <laughs> which is perhaps for a different episode, but that has just happened. Uh, and so that's also very fresh on my mind because, I mean, mm -hmm. I got a lot of messages this weekend. Oh, yeah. And also uh, Rosemary Barton said that she was proud that five, uh, four white women were on TV together. <laughs> All of that happened this week. <laughs> and had never heard of Leslin Lewis. <laughs> super surprised about this woman. Then she said this like a hundred times announcing to the world that she has perhaps not done the work that her job exiges, as we would say in French, re requires. Yeah. She also, anyway, it, there's, there's a lot going on. <laughs> I, uh, my, my head hurts thinking about it. And I think it's possibly part of the reason I am just so, so exhausted. So as you say, it's difficult to come off of a week like this and just jump into some sort of analysis, like where the fuck do we even start? 
Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking before the show and the theme that that we both thought was the best way to think about this, the, the events of the past week, was that if you're waiting for things to get worse before you take action, uh, <laughs> you, you, you can't. You can't. They, they are going to get worse. We are at the point of like, you know, please, if you are not not yet panicking about the state of our society and where it is moving, you should be there. It should trouble us all <laughs> that both in a pandemic situation and in a situation of how the police treat black people. It is the NBA that was among the first to take action uh, with the pandemic. Yeah. They were, of course, one of the first institutions to say, fuck this, we're shutting it down. And that got a whole bunch of other institutions to start moving. And now, you know, the with the, the players strike that happened this week, they were among the first institutions to take a wildcat withdrawal of their labor. And and many folks uh, commented on a tweet that I put out about their strike saying, oh, well, you know, they're represented by the union. A union. This was a union decision. It wasn't a union decision at first. It became a union decision, but it was actually rank and file. If we can talk about uh, athletes that way, I, you know, there's some uh, critique to be had about discussing it in that way. But it was actually um, the athletes who started uh, taking the action. And then the union um, it came in a little bit afterwards. They took the right action in saying that, you know, this is going to be now a, a decision of the players. The players are not going to play. Um, and I think, uh, somehow the NBA and it's, I mean, I mean, the NBA players and it's the players union is, is, you know, doing something that is quite instructive for labor activists and workers, uh, across North America right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like watching all of these things happen, uh, over the course of the past week. And I, I, for some reason, tortured myself. Well, not for some reason. I thought it was very interesting. Um, watched the entire Republican National Convention. And it was fascinating how... I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, it was kind of amazing to watch them just steal Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah and uh, have some shit fucking opera singer singing it and them all stand at attention as if it's like a religious song. <laughs> <laughs> like as if it's not about fucking, which is what it is about, um, <laughs> which is that's just awesome. And then anyway, I can go on and on about the music. But um, the 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 action taken by the players in the NBA and of course, before them, the WNBA, they've been really on the front line, the, the, the Women's uh, National Basketball Association um, before the NBA players uh, really started to kind of show their support for the movement. It it was it's a it's a moment where all of a sudden you start to see individuals say this can't go on, and so often we are used to seeing the message this can't go on, uh, you know, written on a placard in held up in a street, held up during a march, and that's important. It's an important way to show your support or to condemn something or to bring people together, but the stakes. It seems like every single day the stakes are becoming higher and higher for average people to take radical action. And by radical action, I mean the action that 
potentially puts, you know, their job on the line or something like that, but that when done with enough people can actually force decision makers into making a decision. And, you know, it's one thing to look at Donald Trump and say, like, that guy's never going to be forced into doing anything. But it's something quite different looking at our own political situation with Justin Trudeau and imagining, okay, so what does it have to take in Canada to take some of these issues seriously? And, you know, during the collapse of the of the Johnny MacDonald statue, which is just so amazing uh, and, and fun to watch. I mean, Duncan Kinney put out a, a, a gif of it. And so, I mean, I've just watched it over and over. Um, but the, That gif is so gold. <laughs> I love it. I mean, his head just flies off and it's because, of course, um, uh, activists years ago cut the head off of John A. So the head itself was a different part of the statue, which is why it flew off so fucking amazingly. Um, but the the way that uh, media, the conservatives, some liberals have responded to this action is just another piece of proof that shows that Canada absolutely needs its like Canadians, its people to take radical action, because without taking radical action, all we are left are these like messages on repeat and the conservatives get to snake themselves out of having to have any accountability. I mean, we also was it this week that we also found out that the police who were present and who I would say caused the death of Regis Korchinski Paquette uh, were cleared by the Special Investigations Unit. Did that happen this week, too? That. That also happened this week. Yes, that is right. That also happened this week. And there was also another uh, incident, uh, SAU-involved incident, uh, on in Little Jamaica uh, in Toronto, where uh, um, someone uh, w- was, I don't know, maybe having some sort of uh, mental health crisis, if, if what uh, folks are saying on Twitter and Facebook is to be believed, and was on top of a car. And the police deployed apparently dozens of officers. And this was at the same time that there was a demonstration that was happening uh, to defund the police. And so people, you know, rightfully recorded this and were like, why are there so many people here for this one guy? Uh, anyway, apparently two officers, um, uh, the, I mean, the SIU and the police announced that two of their officers had to go to the hospital. Uh, but, uh, you know, trying to suggest, I think, uh, that the uh, the protest uh, was was violent, but there's so much video evidence of people just standing around asking the police why there's so many of them mm-hmm. there. So I don't know. We'll see what happens there. But yes, uh, the SIU decision to um, not uh, have a investigation in a court of law against the police officers uh, who were, uh, you know, present when Regis died. Uh, was was decided, and a former SIU director stated that he th- thinks that that was the wrong decision. Yeah, I mean, if you read the report, and I really encourage you, if you have the stomach to you know read details like this, to read the the report because it, it identifies that you know that there was no. It wasn't as if Regis was committing suicide, which is what the narrative was that came out immediately following her her, her death, it, it, that there was a situation where she was under stress. There were six officers in her apartment. And the report itself says that she was trying to climb from one balcony to another balcony. And a situation like that, I mean, OK, did a police officer push her over the edge? You know, doesn't sound like it, according to the SIU, although, you know, we don't really know what 
what happened. We don't actually know. There's, yeah. We don't know. But even based on the information that the SIU has released is still like cause and effect. Like it is very clearly cause and effect. And, you know, is there going to be any reckoning with that moment at the level of city council in Toronto or the level of uh, the police? Like, of course not. And and we're seeing police budgets being in- increased, right? We're seeing the city of Edmonton trying to buy a police tank. <laughs> like, okay. And we, we have the... Unbelievable. And we have the NDP that can't go further than saying review the funding to the RCMP and then add all these new extra supports, but then allowing people to then say, oh, do you mean supports on top or do you mean taking money out of police and then paying for these supports? You know, let's remain a little bit vague so that people don't have to necessarily say that the NDP is defunding, wants to defund the police. I, you know, the, 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 your tweet and the actions taken by like professional athletes uh, through a Wildcat strike really drived home, drived, drove, <laughs> drove home <laughs> the, uh, the, the, that question of where the fuck are working people in these struggles? Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's just so frustrating because it's like, what actually are we waiting for? It is, in fact, working people who are being negatively affected uh, by the, you know, that's such a euphemism. That's not even the right set of words to use. It is working people who are being murdered by the police. It's working people who are being murdered by the police. It's working people who are being harmed and um in some cases maimed by the police, like uh, Mm -hmm. something needs to be done. And uh, I am stunned that, you know, sorry. Okay. Yes. Something needs to be done, but more than that, all of us need to do something. Okay. This is, this is what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm saying that something needs to be done, whether (laughs) it is that you are writing about it, creating content, uh, you know, talking about it, uh, organizing uh, uh, with it, like something everywhere that you are needs to be done. If you're in school, you need to inject that somehow into your everyday in your education. And if you're fucking at work, God, like the unions really need to be doing something about this. And if the unions aren't ready to move, then the rank and file uh, need to start organizing so that to bring their unions along, to make sure that the unions get to where they need to go. There was someone who was responding to you, Nora, on Twitter when you were uh, rightfully criticizing the NDP for not going far enough. I mean, God, you're supposed to be the Socialist Party. Why the fuck can't you say defund the police? It's so simple. You can say um, decriminalize all drugs. You should be able to say defund the police. It's the same line of thinking. I, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And you said you crit- you crit- criticized them. And then someone who um, uh, said that she was a member of the party uh, and she said, I just don't know what to do. Can you, can you, besides just critiquing, give me an action plan? Yes. Yes. Change. Yeah. Change. Make this unacceptable within the party. There are things that are completely unacceptable that if someone were to move a motion on this, that, the other at the next policy convention, people would lose their minds and try to organize to stop so-and-so from getting to the mic. I've never been to a convention, but I've heard many a tale of how this whole thing works, okay? It is possible to make 
things absolutely unacceptable by the party. The, 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 the membership of a party is meant to drive its policy. It's meant to drive what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. So if you are a member of the party and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, man, yeah, you're right. Like that critique that Nora had, that that does suck. That that's totally right. But what can I do? It is it's you have to call out the party. You have to critique them. You must critique them either within or outside um, and make this unacceptable because here's what's happened. The, the most left wing party in Canada has essentially just blinked at indigenous and black people being killed by the police throughout a summer of a heightened attention to this issue and where the majority of Canadians uh, uh, have, have are on the side of defunding the police. That means something's wrong and policy needs to change. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that tweet because I have to be honest, I don't think I saw it because I don't think I res- did I respond? <laughs> no, you did not respond to it. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes sometimes Twitter of course does hide responses and so it's sometimes hard to to catch everything, but you know, just thinking off the top of my head, like the fact that there's no uh, NDP members for the party to support defunding the police campaign like that right off the bat you can organize people online who are members of the of the NDP and say we want our party to take this position there will not be a policy convention for fucking probably as long as the party can not have one and in absence of that then you have to mobilize the grassroots and then once you have a solid number of party members who are well spread out across Canada to demonstrate that there's broad support then you start to go and you you talk to the Matthew Greens and the Leah Gazans and the Nikki Ashtons of the party and say, will you join this coalition? Will you openly say publicly that to the party that we support this and that we want the NDP to change their line? Like there is pressure. I, I'm just thinking aloud. Like, I mean, if you get four people onto a Zoom call, I'm sure you'd come up with something even better than that. But there's ways to exert pressure that are uh, sometimes very easy, right? Like the the Black Lives Matter stopping the Pride Parade in 2016 is the fucking gold standard example of something that is very, very easy to do. Well, very, very easy to do. Not that logistically difficult to do, but that had a massive impact. Um, you know, tearing down the John A. Macdonald statue in Montreal, like look at how it's completely shaped conversations the last two days. It's not that complicated and some nice big results. Now, of course, you have to keep mobilizing and organizing to do that. And I know that the folks involved with that are seasoned activists who I'm sure are thinking of what the like, how do you continue to make this happen on the ground? But this is this is what's required is that you look at what memberships you have, what alliances you have, and then what kind of power you have in your workplace to take this kind of action or these kinds of action. And, you know, the the NBA, you know, a lot of people said, well, of course they would do it. These are professional athletes who have tons of money. Uh, Working people don't have that kind of privilege. It's like I really need people to get that idea out of their minds because, like, is the NBA going to be the vanguard of the revolution? I don't think so. I think maybe like it is possible that maybe a couple of players might be like, yeah, okay, I mean, I'm ready to take some leadership on this. And maybe, maybe (laughs) there'll be some of them around on the front lines of the revolution. But no, of course not. They're professional athletes. They're very wealthy or or whatever. Um, But... 
they still have a fucking lot to lose by not playing. And that's the message I think that people need to understand. Working people have never gotten anything without putting them, their jobs on the line. That's the literal only power that you have under capitalism is to put your job on the line and say we are not working until these conditions are met. And so what does it take to build to a moment like that? That's an interesting conversation. It's going to look different in every, you know, wherever you are located. But I know I've received messages from people who have been telling me how they're agitating within their organizations. Uh, and that they're freaked out, like they're challenging their bosses and they're challenging uh, their management to say, how are we interacting with defund the police? In one situation in particular, I'm thinking of it's a it's a, a, a world that's not they're not police, but they interact. They're they're an agency of the state. And it's just like, yes, that's the kind of thing that, that we need to be doing. And uh, and then finding ways to support one another so that you don't feel like you are uh, putting yourself at total risk or exposure or whatever. It, it, like a lot of times people will say to me and Sandy, I'm sure you get this as well, that like, I'm really courageous. Do people tell you that? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. I get it all the time. And it's like, I don't know how to best explain to everybody that says this to me that like nothing I do is that courageous. <laughs> <laughs> it's just doing what's right and obvious and in some cases what's like kind of the easiest option sometimes depending on what I'm talking about or doing but it's not really courageous it's if you stand up to power you might feel really afraid but those people on the other side of that that desk or the people on the other side of whatever management they're fucking like not smart they're not smart they're not there because they're ultra fucking smart or maybe maybe in the minority they might be. But you have power to challenge people and you have to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable in debate and in confrontation because confrontation is the only thing that is going to save us. Yeah, I think that our society's resistance to experiencing confrontation ever makes it make it makes it seem courageous when you watch someone else um, really going against the norm and calling out what, you know, maybe when you hear it, you see it, you hear it as obvious. Oh, man, that is obvious. Uh, that, that policy, that idea, the, that way of doing things is obviously bad. Why haven't we thought about it that way? But actually, I would say beyond even like not really being that courageous, it's like, the risk of not doing it is is far greater. <laughs> like the risk yeah. of continuing uh, with these fucking ridiculous shitbag policies that keep killing black and indigenous people that have us hurtling towards uh, towards fascism and in the United States already in fascism. Like <laughs> these these policies like we are risking our lives by not doing anything if you're not responding to such things you are risking your life and that ah, like the status quo hmm. pretending that everything is fine is a giant fucking risk and like yeah i i understand that there are different levels of risk that each of us need to decide to take in doing 
the opposite because we take personal like we there's a collective risk in not doing anything there's an individual risk in in doing something sure I I I hear that like uh here's an individual risk that Nora and I deal with uh perhaps we will never get uh that coveted position in the bureaucracy that we so want you know working on (laughs) on fucking parliament hill that is a risk you know (laughs) I you know I'm being glib but you know we have probably stopped ourselves from being considered for certain types of work um, certainly Nora has, uh, certainly I have in the types of writing <laughs> yep. that we do and the types of talking that we do, like that is a personal risk for which I'm sure we both did some sort of assessment at some point in our lives and figured, eh, let's just keep it moving. And you know, the, the, the two, the two men who were killed in Kenosha, they also took a personal risk. Uh, in saying, you know, we are going to put our bodies on the line for black lives. We are going to to not allow things to go on as normal. And when we see these Trump supporters with their guns out, uh, we're going to place ourselves in between black people and these people. Those are, you know, different levels of risk. And we all are going to uh, uh, take stock at, of where we are and what we can do. Um, you know, attending a protest is another level of risk. Um, and you know, talking to your union, talking to your um, your your fellow workers, and saying, "Shouldn't we try to do something?" is another level of risk. Talking to your fe- fellow party members and saying, "Maybe we should push the party on this," is another level of risk. And we should all be taking a look at our lives and seeing what levels of personal risk we can withstand in order to save ourselves from the collective risk of just, you know, all the shit that we're going to have to deal with if we don't change society. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that shit, um, because I think that this past week has been really important in the in the punctuation of like the evolution of fascism. So the Conservative Party uh, vote-eating machine, uh, unfortunately, they could fix it. <laughs> and they ended God up... Damn. I know. And they ended up electing a baby wearing a fake chin named Aaron O'Toole. <laughs> and... <laughs> but if you look at the results, uh, you know, and they've got a pr- priority balloting, right? And so it went to, th- to three rounds. And if you look at the third round, uh, which, I mean, there's only four, four candidates, so whatever, um, you had a, a pretty narrow split between the, the thirds. So you had Leslin Lewis, who was the, the smallest third, but still quite, like, I mean, very close to a full third. Peter McKay, who was just above her with another third, and Aaron O'Toole with a third. And so that says that the Conservative Party is very clearly divided among what those thirds represent. And so what do they represent? Some of it's regional. I mean, Leslin Lewis won Saskatchewan. Peter McKay won Atlantic Canada. He had no hope in hell winning Alberta because Jason Kenney hates him. And so that was Aaron O'Toole country. But some of it, or most of it, is related to their politics. And this is where progressives need to be thinking about what is coming after the liberals. What is coming next? And how do we anticipate that so that we can organize in such a way to try and at least improve what we can improve rather than just sitting on a fucking shit train going to shitsville. And so, 
you know, <laughs> Leslyn Lewis, she had the combined vote with Derek Sloan after the first balloting. And those two are extreme social conservatives. Very, very, very socially conservative. They're both very anti-choice, anti-queer. They're like exactly the caricature uh, uh, of, of political ideology within the Conservative Party, if you think of the Conservative Party. Now, on the other side, you have Peter McKay, and he comes from the Red Tory tradition. The Red Tories are more traditional who ran Canada, like the progressive conservatives. They're not going to be saying that they hate gay people. And Peter McKay probably even knows a couple, probably even gone to some of their weddings. And, um, and he, <laughs> still, like that strain is under massive attack from the other two thirds. Because the one that won was this Aaron O'Toole, who's like strong military with a message of take back Canada run by the proto-fascists at Ontario Proud in the post-millennial. And so like these folks are very fucking savvy and they know what they're doing. And more importantly, they're paying very close attention to the mistakes being made by the Democratic Party and watching how Donald Trump is capitalizing on those mistakes, even if Aaron O'Toole isn't necessarily going to take all of Donald Trump's fucking policies and implement them in Canada. I don't think he's that kind of conservative. And so like the thinking through how do we resist that onslaught, what are the levers that we have to to resist like the conservative party going hard to the right? How do we resist the, the 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 liberal corruption machine that is fucking licking its wounds right now? And how do we force the NDP into doing something that's not shit? And then of course you've got the Greens, which I would say join, vote for either Miriam Haddad or Dimitri Lascaris, and maybe the Green Party will be run by an eco-socialist. That will change a lot of the dynamic. And 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 then imagine, okay, so then what do we have to collectively do to try and stop this incredible slide to the right uh, that that we're witnessing happening in real time in the United States? Yeah, and I mean, gosh, uh, all of that plus, if you are uh, like someone who's from media listening to Sandy and Nora quietly, surreptitiously in your basement, hiding it God from bless all you. the people. God bless you. But also note that <laughs> the O'Toole platform uh, seeks to cut 50% of funding from the CBC and seeks to, to so- stop the subsidies going to media organizations. Like this, one hmm. of the things that it's clear that O'Toole is interested in, in ter- terms of taking from the Trump handbook, is to really have an, an impact on on the media. And so if you are from, you know, perhaps the CBC or somewhere else, um, a media organization that has done an assessment in the last few years and have said, oh, we've got to really make sure we're doing everything that we can to appease the right, just know that you'll never win that fight. <laughs> they they come at this from a place of deep principle in that they do not give a fuck what you are actually reporting unless it's propaganda for them. They will cut you. <laughs> they will try yeah. to stop interacting with you all together if they can, because there's a model that works for this very, very well for conservatism. And it's all over the United States. It's being employed in Ontario right now as well. Uh, Just don't fucking kowtow to that. Tell us what we actually need to hear. And gosh, there's this great article that came out in The Walrus a couple weeks ago, I think, by Pasant Matar, uh, that talks about how uh, it 
the idea of objectivity in journalism, if you are covering what's happening um, right now, I mean, her, her article is, is really specific to the black experience, but it can be um, uh, expanded to everything that's happening. You know, if you are uh, uh, covering the news right now, uh, objectivity is is a privilege that is only afforded to, as she puts it, white journalists. But I would expand that to say that, you know, those of us who are those of us, those of you who are interested in protecting the elites right now, like you can't you can't honestly report the news without having some sort of analysis attached to it that says like fascism is bad or black people dying is bad or, um, you know, fuck, uh, we're all going to die from climate change. Like, like these, these are, these are barely an analyses anymore. Like this isn't just like some sort of opinion of someone, um, you, you, trying to, to make hay of, of uncertain facts. These are true statements. And if, if media organizations are, restraining themselves from telling the truth as a result to, uh, in order to appeal to to um, uh, people in power who may be more conservative soon. Uh, that's not the winning strategy. No. One of the things that I was thinking a lot about while watching the Republican National Convention was just how well Donald Trump and his machine creates narrative and creates propaganda. Like the the Democratic National Convention was propaganda as well. But the Republican one was so slick and so well done that you could just see like it really didn't matter if every single thing that that Trump was saying or that any of the people were saying was was lies. And of course, there were a lot of lies. None of that matters. Because when they're speaking to their base, the lies are actually what makes them popular. And you don't make them unpopular by saying, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, that's a lie. That's actually there a lie. Because underneath all of the lies, there is a desire for people to believe that they found a savior who can help fix the ravages of capitalism. I mean, that's really what has driven so much of the misery across the United States for all working class people. But Trump being so fucking good at this, his like his uh, final speech video and then a lot of that really boring and rambling 70 minute speech was was stealing the language of the left. It was really wild. Like if he wasn't railing against socialism and those socialist assholes in the Democratic Party and socialism is going to come and kill us or whatever, he was talking about ending the war, bringing soldiers home, paying them decent wages, getting women back to work. All of this like stuff that somehow the the Democrats have just like let go. And, And not when I say somehow, I know exactly how they did it. And I think the best example was in the story of one of the of the people that spoke because the RNC had a lot of like average people speaking who supported Trump. Of course, the New York Times has found that a lot of those average people didn't know that that's what the video was for and are kind of pissed. <laughs> but again, like Trump doesn't care. Like, why would he care about that? But one of the people that did speak was a woman, a black woman who had been uh, who had been sent to jail for something like 20 years under a Biden sponsored tough on crime bill because she had a, a, a minor drug charge. And so she spent 20 fucking years in jail. <laughs> and because of some campaign of Kim Kardashian, Trump pardoned her. 
And she's very religious. And so she was there and she's like, this man gave me back my life. And this is incredible. And it was a Biden sponsored crime bill that put me away. And then you have Trump, who's like obviously going to build more prisons and put more people in jail, being able to say, haha, we're not like the Democrats. We're not going to lie to you. We're not going to give money to Wall Street. We're not going to be corrupt. And I just think so much about how the liberals in Canada really operate under like such similar logic to the Democrats. They're just like less globally significant. And so like it's like lesser, like by an order of magnitude less or a couple of orders of magnitude less. But the commentary like the criticism stuck so close to those lies that Trump was telling that it completely missed how it doesn't fucking matter that he lies. It really. And in fact, that's why he lies is because that's what he's going to propel him into winning again in November. And unless like like left wing people and not even just left wing people, like people in media, people making commentary can see through this stuff and explain it to average people like the same sort of thing is going to propel Aaron O'Toole into power. And the same sort of thing is going to render the NDP completely useless as they chase the center and is going to maybe, you know, get the liberals to sit out for one or two terms every fucking eight years. After all of that, I just feel like that may have been the most uh, uh, jumbly, disjointed conversation we've had because there's just so much to talk about this week. But I'm still just I'm just so, so exhausted. But I will say that, uh, you know, though we have these critiques, the moments of uh, people uh, taking action and taking those risks that we talked about earlier uh, doing the work to, um, you know, whether it's the NBA players doing the wildcat strike and the WNBA players doing a wildcat strike and uh, other athletes across all sorts of different um, types of sports taking action to, re- to withdraw their labor and uh, other labor activists that I've seen in the in the United States and Canada starting to talk about such things, uh, people toppling statues, uh, people taking action in the streets. Like those are the moments where uh, I just feel like my brain can kind of take a break from from like the anxiety and the fear and the sadness and just feel uh, inspired because for those of us who are who are willing to take those risks, I think that every time we do something like that, we encourage other people to do it too. And that's what it's going to take is just more and more of us taking these risks because, you know, Nora, earlier you were appealing to our power as individuals and our power as individuals comes from our collectivity and um the the goal of folks in power of the right of the white supremacists of the fascists is to make us believe that we don't have power at all and it's in those individual risk taking that we show that in fact we do and the more and more of us who do that the more we'll be able to wrest power uh from the hands of the absolutely uh, draconian folks who are currently um, dictating the way that our system moves forward. (laughs) 